Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. David Bowie was in the middle of performing his song, Reality, when he first felt it. A sharp pain in his shoulder. It was June 23rd, 2004, and he was playing a show at Prague. The venue was sweltering, and he was dripping with sweat. Besides that, he looked as good as ever. Fit, stylish, and much sprightlier than his 57 years should have allowed. The thrashing rocker he sang was about staring down your own mortality and accepting it. Now my sight is fading in this twilight, he sang. Then the pain hit. Suddenly, he couldn't catch his breath. He could barely manage the next line. Now my death is more than just a sad song. Then he stopped singing entirely. His bandmates glanced over, alarmed. They saw him hunched forward, clutching his chest and shoulder, looking pale, almost translucent. His eyes were wide. He seemed scared. Even the audience could tell something was badly wrong, and their expressions changed from joy to concern. A bodyguard was summoned and led him off the stage. The band continued without him for a few numbers while David rallied in the wings. He hated to cancel shows. There were nights when he kept a bucket just out of the spotlight in case he needed to be sick. He went back out to continue. He struggled valiantly through China Girl and Modern Lover, but stumbled during the ten-minute epic Station to Station and excused himself once more. After taking more time to recoup, he gave it one more shot, singing two more songs while seated on a stool. But then he finally gave in and took his premature bows. A doctor told him it was just a trapped nerve, Nothing to worry about. He was given the go-ahead to perform at a festival in Germany two days later. It was there, on stage before 40,000 people, that he'd suffer a heart attack. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life or rather lives, of David Bowie. Today, we're looking at Bowie, the rock and roll elder statesman. 
Throughout the 90s, he continued to change and challenge, inspiring new generations with his work. Far be it from David to go gently into middle age. But more than ever, he enjoyed life off the stage. David had a second chance at marriage and fatherhood and was deliriously happy in both. He'd faced his demons and won. Now he faced his own mortality, and that would be a much more difficult battle. It was a hot, hazy night in Nassau back in 1988. A bar band wrapped up their set in a tiny tourist watering hole. As they started to pack up, a group of older guys sidled up. We want to play a few songs. Mind if we borrow your gear, they asked. For a bar band in the Bahamas, this was a fairly common request. It's always the same. Dudes on vacation have a few beers and want to relive the glory days of their high school garage band. Here comes another tuneless version of Louie Louie. Happens all the time. These guys looked like yuppies, probably in town for a business conference. Although one of them did look kind of familiar. The stage crashers stepped up and grabbed their respective instruments. If they bothered to introduce themselves to the 40 or so American travelers, it certainly didn't earn them any special attention. The name Tin Machine meant nothing to these sunburned boozers bent over their umbrella drinks. But one by one, eyes zeroed in on the lead singer. Is that David Bowie? No. Wait, I think it is. No, that can't be him. He's got a beard. But it was David Bowie. And he loved every messy minute of this five-song gorilla gig. The raw excitement gave him such a buzz. For years, he'd meticulously stage-managed each one of his performances. The lighting, props, and makeup, even the slightest gestures of his hands and face. Everything was engineered for maximum theatricality. Now, devoid of drama and backed by his three friends, he could just rock. That is, after all, why he'd come to the Bahamas in the first place. He spent most days at a local studio working on a new album. But it wasn't a David Bowie record. Make no mistake, this was a band, like the Beatles or the Stones. It was his latest transformation, and in a way, it was his most radical. He was no longer David Bowie superstar. He was David Bowie, lead singer of the band Tin Machine. Just one of the guys. But of course, he could never just be one of the guys. He was David Bowie, backed by a bunch of guys who, regardless of their formidable musical talents, were not David Bowie. At first, it all seemed rather dubious. He wasn't the first 41-year-old man to start a band with a few friends. On the surface, it seemed like classic symptoms of a midlife crisis, up there with buying a sports car and getting a tattoo. It was, indeed, a strange move for such an unashamed individualist. Back in the 60s, his tenure in a string of bands would always be comically short-lived. He'd storm off for one reason or another with a gleefully selfish cry of numero uno, mate. That's who he was looking out for. Number one. These days, of course, he had nothing to prove. He was ready to have some fun. The endeavor was less a reaction to middle age and more of a reaction to his dismal last record, 1987's Never Let Me Down. The title was amusing because the disc succeeded in letting down pretty much everyone. 
Released just after his 40th birthday, the glossy pop had been scrubbed of anything that bore even the slightest suggestion of grit or experimentation. Even the addition of his old Bromley school friend and fellow rock titan Peter Frampton failed to liven up the proceedings. Even David was horrified by the songs. It wasn't played with any conviction, he'd say. It was studio-fied to such an extent that, halfway through the sessions, I was going out to lunch and just leaving everyone else to it. Perhaps to distract from the subpar material, David promoted Never Let Me Down with his most ambitious tour ever. It recalled the epic stage production of Diamond Dogs in 1974, but being the 80s, it was much bigger than Diamond Dogs in every sense. More of everything, more dates, more seats, more money, The set for what would become known as the Glass Spider Tour was touted as the biggest ever, costing an outrageous $10 million. Named for the album track about a mythological arachnid, the centerpiece of the production was a massive glass spider that loomed 60 feet over the stage. Weighing 360 tons, it required a jaw-dropping 43 trucks just to transport it. 300 people worked in shifts for four straight days to assemble the set for its American debut in Philadelphia that July. In a twist worthy of Spinal Tap, David discovered that the gargantuan spider was too big to fit into many indoor arenas. He hastily had a smaller junior spider built, at no small cost. For David's entrance, he was lowered inside a translucent spider's belly while a fleet of dancers rappelled down from the scaffolding above the stage. In a bid to make this a multimedia event, the elaborately choreographed songs were broken up by short films. The overamped guitar duels between Frampton and Carlos Alomar often descended into a sort of headbanging parody. Songs were chosen less for their audience appeal and more to serve the plots for a series of vignettes. For the big finale, David appeared on top of a radio tower, wearing a gold lame leather suit decked out with a pair of wings. Then he slid down to the stage to perform his encore. It was, in a word, ridiculous. On paper, it was a success. Press reports declared it the most lucrative tour of David's career, selling three million tickets. In retrospect, some would cite the show as a watershed for arena rock paving the way for acts like U2 and Madonna to mount their own theatrical productions. But the Glass Spider Tour is seldom remembered as a triumph. To many, it smacked of an aging man trying too hard. Despite all of the props and flamboyance, it read as plotless and pointless, an overblown self-indulgent spectacle. David's productions had always been characterized by taste and style. Even back in the low-resource Ziggy Stardust days, when he had to make do with homemade costumes and doing his own makeup. Yet now that money was no object, the glass spider set looked cheap. Pathetic, observed one critic. Like an amateur theater production, said another. Though Bowie initially enjoyed the Vegas-style absurdity of it all, he quickly grew tired of the hassle. And tired in general. In advance of the tour, he'd submitted himself to 12-hour rehearsals six days a week. He also insisted on overseeing all technical aspects of the production himself. By the time the tour kicked off in March of 87, he was already exhausted. The rigorous choreography didn't exactly help. This is the most physical tour that I've ever done, he said. It's relentless. It never stops. 
I'm bruised as hell. I feel like a worn-out rag doll. He struggled to cope with the punishing number of dates. Some nights his voice gave out, forcing Carlos Alomar to step in and cover for him. David grew cranky, and he began to lash out at the band and crew, blaming them for the lukewarm reviews. When the shows wrapped in New Zealand that November, he ceremoniously burnt the spider set in a field. Back home in Switzerland, he found himself at loose ends. He obviously wasn't going to tour like that again anytime soon. Nothing he did seemed to be working, and his record label, EMI, was always there to let him know. The conglomerate had shelled out some $17 million for a five-record deal in 1982, but since then, his sales figures had taken a downward turn. 1988 marked the first time in 17 years that Bowie's name didn't appear in the charts at all. In corporate speak, there was concern about the declining prospects of a viable product. In other words, they feared he was washed up, past it, a spent force. David was starting to get flack about his age from all sides. During press conferences for the Glass Spider Tour, he fended off questions about arthritis and lame jokes about renaming it the Antique Roadshow. He managed to grin and bear it without throttling any journalists, but when Kim Gordon of the ultra-hip alt-rock band Sonic Youth described Bowie in an interview as, quote, an old fart, it hurt. He seriously considered retiring altogether and focusing on painting. I thought I should make as much money as I could and then quit, he later admit. I didn't think there was any alternative. I thought I was obviously just an empty vessel and would end up like everyone else doing these stupid shows and singing Rebel Rebel until I fall over and bleed. David's path forward revealed itself in the form of a cassette he'd received during the Glass Spider tour. His public relations officer had slipped him a tape of her husband's music. His name was Reeves Grabrells. When David got around to playing Reeves' tape months after the tour wrapped, he was thoroughly impressed by his unique bluesy guitar. David called him up almost immediately, inviting him to his Swiss home to collaborate. Reeves had been an avowed Bowie fan since his teenage years, but he found his hero surprisingly insecure and deeply unhappy. David confided that the multi-million dollar EMI deal made him feel duty-bound to deliver hits, but the pressure to be commercial left him creatively stifled. The success he'd had earlier in the decade with the global smash Let's Dance left him confused about who he was singing to. In his own words, he'd lost his vision. Instead, with Reeves' encouragement, he put the audience aside and revisited the music that made him excited. They poured over David's favorites, Hendrix, Cream, John Lee Hooker, Buddy Guy, and Junior Wells. These formative influences would be the basis for the sound of David's new project, Tin Machine. A decade earlier, David had escaped the crushing tyranny of the top 40 life by fleeing to Berlin and his aggressively uncommercial ambient explorations with Brian Eno. Now he took a similar approach, this time fleeing into a garage band. It allowed him to deconstruct the carefully assembled musical persona that had taken over his life. Like his Glass Spider tour, it had grown bloated and overblown. Now he could get back to the basics, and the results were liberating. Rather than continue to court the mass appeal he'd earned with Let's Dance, he'd simply stop trying and just do what he wanted. 
Tin Machine was David's abrupt left turn to take him away from the middle of the road. It led to a creative dead end, according to most critics. But at least he enjoyed the ride. For a rhythm section, he tapped brothers Tony and Hunt Sales. Sons of TV comedian Soupy Sales, they were twin dynamos who'd earned their stripes backing Iggy Pop in his Lust for Life period, before Iggy rudely dismissed them with the scathing line, You're like heroin. I don't need you. Tales of the Sales' excesses and bad behavior are legendary. Drummer Hunt was described by one bandmate as the kind of guy who, quote, consumes his own body weight in dangerous substances every day. Bassist Tony had been involved in a nasty car crash that sent a stick shift through his chest and left him legally dead for several minutes. His memory was still a little shaky from the multi-month coma, and his bandmates often had to shout the chord changes at him mid-song. The brothers joined Reeves and Bowie in Switzerland, adding a dose of chaos to the sessions. It was volatile, but productive. The first day yielded a new song, an unadorned retro blues called Heavens in Here. It was a sign of the fruitful partnership that would continue when recording formally began at Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas. Some 35 tracks coalesced in just six weeks, including one rockabilly tune that would give the band its name. Most were recorded live, often in a single take. In between songs, the Sales Brothers would call up their comedian father, blasting his dirty jokes through the studio PA. This set the tone for the productive yet rowdy sessions. The Sales Brothers were not the least bit cowed by Bowie's reputation and hectored him into leaving the rough edges and raw, improvised words. The resulting lyrics are uncharacteristically obscenity-laden, and some might say unsophisticated, but they give the tracks a punkish edge, in many ways predicting the grunge explosion still a few years off. To hear David tell it, the decision to make the project a true four-way partnership was obvious. I think this has got to be a band, David said at the end of an early session. You guys don't listen to me anyway. It was the first time he'd embraced a group banner since his days with the Spiders from Mars. And even then, it was his name out front. This time, it was a gang of equals. Equal pay and equal attention. Though in practice, it was less like a democracy and more like a shouting match, with the mild-mannered Reeves on one side as David's deputy and de facto musical director, and the rambunctious Sales Brothers on the other. David adored all of it. The teasing, the roughhousing, the fighting, the whole sweaty, four-guys-in-a-basement vibe. It was everything that had been missing from his musical life since his days in the King Bees as a teen. A new, neatly-trimmed beard signaled this new image. And so did another classic rock star accessory, a much younger girlfriend. Melissa Hurley was a 20-year-old soloist with the Los Angeles Chamber Ballet, talented, intelligent, and beautiful. She was hired as a dancer for the Glass Spider Tour. Each night, she'd pose in the audience as a screaming fan, only to be dragged up on stage to dance seductively with David. Her effortless splits always managed to impress. From this silly bit of stage business, their relationship blossomed. They made a cute couple. Almost 20 years David's junior, she playfully tried to update his style with hats and scarves with brightly colored 80s patterns. He'd play along for a few days before quietly losing them. She even got him to wear a thong at the beach, which led to merciless teasing from his bandmates. David loved to bring Melissa to art museums and elegant restaurants. 
the elder man showing his love the world. David was enjoying his time as the front man for a rock group, but the all-for-one, one-for-all charade was becoming hard to maintain. When Tin Machine released their self-titled debut in May of 1989, many reviewers simply ignored the whole band thing and just described it as a new David Bowie record. David tried to combat this by insisting that all interviews be conducted with the whole band. Usually, their quotes were telling. As Hunt Sales joked to one journalist, the thing that makes us different from other bands is that the lead singer is a millionaire. And of course, he was right. Their low-key club tour that summer may have looked like an old-school rock and roll road show as they traveled by bus and played cards and ate at Greasy Spoon Diners. But it was David who handed them each $1,000 in cash to buy Prada suits for their first gig. Sure, they were equal, but David's wealth made him a little more equal. To everyone who didn't happen to be in Tin Machine, it all seemed disingenuous. Just another pretentious character from David Bowie. This time, he's posing as the frontman for some obscure rock band. The record sold decently, moving some two million copies. But the critical reaction was mixed. Some found the raw, stripped-down music exhilarating, citing it as his most exciting work in years. Others were turned off by their frattiness and phoniness. How can you bill yourselves as a pissed-off, punky alt-rock band when you have a superstar frontman and three virtuoso-level musicians? David himself started to moan about the bad press. The same people who'd mocked the Glass Spider tour as overblown pomposity now rejected his straight-ahead rock approach. I can't get anything right, David complained. I can't go big. I can't go small. Whichever way I go is wrong. At a time when he seemed more than happy to put his past behind him, David was presented with a business opportunity that was too good to pass up. At the dawn of the 90s, the transition from vinyl to CD was in full swing. Legacy artists like David were making a killing by reissuing their classic albums on this new digital format. Most acts did so with minimal attention to detail. Even the Beatles' CD rollout was a notorious calamity with poorly remixed songs and cheap-looking packaging. David was determined to avoid the same trap. He only agreed to the reissue if each CD contained something of value, unreleased bonus tracks or other outtakes. Though common practice now, he was one of the first to do it. David took it a step further by heralding his arrival on CD with a new rarities-filled box set called Sound and Vision. To promote the remarketing of his life's work, he agreed to temporarily leave the dingy tin machine clubs behind and revert back into his stadium god incarnation. He agreed to a tour, one that was unlike any he'd ever undertaken. For the first time, he didn't have an album of new material. No new guys, persona, or concept to get behind. The Sound and Vision tour was purely a celebration of past glories. For a man who hated looking backwards, the idea of a greatest hits tour made him uncomfortable. To cope, he boldly announced that this would be the last time he'd ever perform beloved titles from his back catalog. This was to be a fond farewell before consigning titles like Ziggy Stardust, Heroes, and Space Oddity to history. To make it more interactive, he introduced a phone poll and asked fans to vote on what songs to include in his set. One prankish music outlet started a campaign to gather votes for The Laughing Gnome, David's cringeworthy 60s novelty number. 
David was amused, but ultimately declined to include the song. The trek would consist of 108 shows in 27 different countries. Slightly traumatized by the negative response to the elaborate Glass Spider tour, he took a minimalist approach this time around. The stage set was dominated by a massive state-of-the-art digital screen. It displayed various videos of David through the years, with which the slightly older flesh-and-blood David would interact. Though he'd cite the Taurus as most enjoyable since the early Ziggy Stardust dates, it felt, at times, forced. The experience seemed to underscore his increasingly schizoid career motivation. David never truly squared his desire for both cult credibility and blockbuster mainstream income. This dichotomy was illustrated perfectly on the Sound and Vision tour, when several dates included a lengthy mid-show pause for a message from the sponsor, a beer brand, killing the musical momentum in the process. God only knows what his Tin Machine bandmates would have said to that. So which was it? Was David a rough-and-ready rocker rebel? Or was he an arena idol with mass appeal? For David, those two identities existed in conflict with one another. It was a problem common for his peers. The first generation of rock stars were now reaching their 40s, and there was no precedent for making the transition into middle age. Like many, David found himself at a crossroads. Would he continue his attempts to break new ground, or accept that his best days were behind him. To move forward, he risked ridicule. To look backwards, he risked becoming a parody. He pondered all this as he absently thumbed through a magazine on a flight between concerts. Then his eyes landed on a stunning woman who graced his page. He elbowed his seatmate to point her out. This girl's interesting, David said. Her name was Aman. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. David Bowie met the love of his life on October 14th, 1990. It was just days after he'd wrapped his Sound and Vision tour, a 108-date farewell to his musical past. That wasn't the only goodbye on the tour. His relationship with Melissa Hurley had come to an end. Despite reports of their engagement, it was an undramatic parting of the ways. David, 19 years her senior, would say that it had become, quote, one of those older men, younger girl situations. It became obvious to me that it just wasn't going to work out as a relationship, and for that, she'd thank me one of these days. He arrived in Los Angeles that fall, perfectly content in his bachelordom. I felt that was it for me, he'd recall. I didn't want, need, or desire any more permanent relationships. Then he received an invite to a birthday party for a hairdresser friend named Teddy Antolin. David would say it was love at first sight when he first saw Iman Muhammad Abdulmajid that night. Technically, they'd met a handful of times before, backstage at one of his gigs and at various other celebrity functions. But the point remains clear. His attraction was intense and instant. I was naming the children the night we met, he would say. I just fell under her spell. For David, Iman was the perfect mix of sparkling intelligence, unshakable confidence, and otherworldly beauty. Underline that last part. David was unequivocal about his first impressions. I found her intolerably sexy, he'd later say. She was born in 1955 in Somalia to a family who prided themselves on intellectual excellence. Her father was a diplomat and her mother a physician. Their vaulted social status couldn't protect them from a military coup, and they fled on foot to neighboring Kenya when she was a teenager. It was there that she studied political science at the University of Nairobi, working her way through school with a waitressing gig and a job as a local translator, putting her five-language fluency to good use. One day between classes in 1975, she was spotted on the street by famed American photographer Peter Beard. Beard was impressed with her obvious beauty and asked if she'd ever been photographed. Iman was offended. 
Oh, God, she thought. Here goes another white man who thinks we've never seen a camera before. She agreed to sit for a shoot, provided Beard pay the $8,000 for her college tuition. Beard, who knew a good investment when he saw it, agreed. He used his formidable contacts to get Iman signed to one of Manhattan's top modeling agencies, Wilhelmina, who'd represented the likes of Lauren Hutton and Angelica Houston. Like David, Iman was preternaturally wise in the ways of media manipulation. She played along with the bizarre and sort of racist Cinderella backstory the agency concocted for her. They cast their latest discovery as a nomadic Somali cattle girl who spoke no English. It was all fabrication, Iman admitted, but I was definitely not the victim of it. I was an accomplice. I knew exactly what was going on. She was less wise about the fashion industry. When photographed for Vogue, she apparently never heard of the fashion bible. It was also her first time wearing makeup and high heels. I was like a deer caught in the headlights of a car, she would remember. She proved to be a natural, able to convey complex emotion through minute manipulations of her hands and face, just like David and his talents for mime. Even their M.O. was similar. You have to give people fantasies, she'd say. You have to create illusions all the time. Iman would come to dominate the fashion landscape in much the same way David did music. The world's biggest designers sang her praises. Yves Saint Laurent would refer to her as flawless. Karl Lagerfeld would call her one of the greatest models in the world. I used her from the start, Bill Blass would say. The truth is, she's a great actress. Future supermodels like Naomi Campbell and Tyra Banks would cite her as both a trailblazer and a mother figure. By the time she met David in 1990, she'd retired from the runway and embarked on her second successful career as a businesswoman with her own cosmetics line. Recently divorced from NBA star Spencer Haywood, she was, like David, wary of getting into another long-term relationship. I had no intention of getting married again, ever, she'd say. And somebody in music? Never. Like a hole in the head. I definitely didn't want to get into a relationship with somebody like David. Yet he won her over with charm and a little persistence. Two weeks after they started casually dating, she flew to Paris for business. When she returned to L.A., David was on the tarmac to meet her, flowers in hand. Photographers had a field day. David didn't care. When it came to courtship, he was old-fashioned, a classic English gentleman. It was the little things that melted her heart. The way he held the door for her. The way he got down in the middle of a street to tie her shoes when her laces came undone. On the 14th of every month, he'd send her flowers for their mini-anniversary. He loved to read to her, just like her father had done. I fell in love with David Jones, she'd say, not David Bowie. Both were mature, masters of their respective fields. Both were secure, both financially and personally. As Iman would note, We've both lived a bit on the wild side, and we're both, deep down, homebodies. For all their similarities, their differences complemented one another well. Iman was grounded, with a strong, singular identity. That's what I needed, my life, David would say. Someone who doesn't have a fractured personality. Very down to earth. Iman's parents liked David, but they would have preferred if he was Somali, or Muslim, or at very least black. 
Still, that didn't stop David from proposing in October of 1991, a year after they'd met. He'd arranged the moment with the same care he lavished on his stage shows. They were in Paris, and he rented a boat to take them up and down the Seine. As the pianist he hired played April in Paris, David got down on one knee. The ring dated from the 18th century. They'd spotted it together while shopping in Florence. When David returned to get it, he discovered that someone else had already bought it. So David used his special Bowie privileges to track down the new owner and buy it off him. The couple also marked their union in a more modern way, and a more permanent one. Tattoos. David opted for a figure riding a dolphin on his left calf, all overlaid with the Japanese translation of the Serenity Prayer. The unusual illustration was inspired by a book he'd recently read called A Grave for a Dolphin, in which a European protagonist finds a sense of peace during his wanderings in Somalia. The character reminded David of himself. Iman shows a more literal symbol for her tattoo, a bowie knife above her ankle with the word David written on the handle. She also got his name in Arabic lettering tattooed on her stomach. David proposed again a few days later, on stage at the Paris Olympia Theater, where he was playing a gig with Tin Machine. He'd reunited with his merry band of rockers not long after wrapping his sound and vision commitments. Iman joined him for some of the dates, giving her an early taste of having a road warrior as a husband. But she ultimately went home early, correctly observing, how many times can you hear the same songs? She wasn't the only one to grow tired of David's band. Execs at David's label, EMI, were also less than thrilled by David's latest musical foray. After all, they'd shelled out millions for David Bowie, not Tin Machine, whoever they were. They balked at the prospect of releasing a second Tin Machine record, forcing David to find another label. The public seemed equally bored by their sophomore offering, called, appropriately enough, Tin Machine 2. The aggressive mash of feedback and distortion held some catchy melodies and strong songs, notably Goodbye Mr. Ed, Shopping for Girls, and the thundering lead single You Belong in Rock and Roll. Bowie himself would rate the album among his all-time favorites, but it didn't connect with audiences, failing to break the top 20 in the UK. It did even worse in the US, where it failed to break 120 on Billboard. After that, David's enthusiasm for the band began to cool. Nothing against the guys, but his priorities were changing, professionally and personally. I no longer need attention, he said, somewhat dubiously at the time. I wanted the adoration of the masses, the audience, because I was incapable of one-to-one communication. I used to feel nothing without my work. Now I no longer feel guilty if I'm not working. Now he had him on, and she had him. They were legally married on April 24th, 1992. It was a quiet service at the City Hall in Lausanne, Switzerland. But the public ceremony for family and friends a few weeks later on June 6th was significantly less quiet. It took place at the St. James Church in Florence. With the hovering news helicopters and cheering crowds, David and Amon were treated like foreign dignitaries. They received a police escort to the church, blowing red lights and causing traffic jams all throughout the ancient city. Friends like Yoko Ono and Brian Eno were on hand for the 50-minute service, which featured music David had written especially for the day. Stylist Teddy Antolin, who'd first introduced the couple, did their hair. The groom wore a white tie suit, the better to show off his glowing tan, topped off with a silver stud in his ear. The bride wore an oyster-colored dress with a train. 
she walked down the aisle to the sound of a Bulgarian folk song. David's 21-year-old son, Zoe, now going by Joey, stood by his father as best man. Afterwards, guests were invited to party at a former Medici estate, where they danced to David's own mixtape. The night ended with Riverside fireworks before the new husband and wife turned in just after midnight. The next day, they set out for a month-long honeymoon to Bali in Japan, a trip that Iman would call divinely sexy. To describe the moment as a turning point in David's life would be both cliché and an understatement. When pressed in interviews to name his greatest achievement, he'd unflinchingly answer, marrying my wife. Nothing else counts. David would mark the occasion with a new record, a new David Bowie record. The Tin Machine were no more. There was no big bust-up and not even a formal split. Some would say the end came the moment he shaved his beard. It was highly symbolic. After a few years of pretending to be an outsider, he wanted his old life back. His memories of the band mirrored their mixed reviews. When it worked, it was unbeatable, he'd say. Some of the most explosive music that I've ever been involved in, or even witnessed. But when it was bad, it was so unbelievably awful, you just wanted the earth to open up and take you under. The band was an absolutely necessary step in his artistic path, helping him break out of the boring MTV cycle he found himself in with Let's Dance. It got him back to his roots and recalibrated his creative compass. And it all led him straight back to the guy who helped him make Let's Dance. For his new record, he teamed up with Nile Rodgers, co-producer and sonic architect of David's 1983 global blockbuster. It was a move that would strike some close to David as confusing. He'd just spent years trying to put that part of his career behind him. Now it seemed like he was going backwards. Perhaps he was caving the pressure from his label, who wanted him to get serious and deliver hits. Or perhaps it was just too personal to be a band project. From the start, he intended the record Black Tie, White Noise to be, in his own words, his wedding album. It opens with a euphoric instrumental piece called The Wedding, which he composed for the nuptials in Florence. Complete with ringing church bells, the tune is a marriage of Western and Eastern modes, signifying their own cultural union. He reprises the theme for the closing track, The Wedding Song, on which he sings of his angel for life. The album also contains the song Jump They Say, inspired by the 1985 suicide of his elder half-brother, Terry. Never before had David publicly voiced his feelings on this devastating loss. The lyrics are oblique, but Terry's ghostly presence is felt through references to madness and death. The specter of David's late brother can also be felt in another song, the techno-funk cover of I Feel Free, originally by Cream. Decades earlier, David had taken Terry to see the band perform. Terry had set young David's imagination alight by showing him around the jazz haunts of Soho as a schoolboy. Now, David was thrilled to reciprocate by taking his elder brother to his very first psychedelic rock show. But the ear-splitting music triggered a psychotic episode in Terry, an early manifestation of the schizophrenia that would derail his life. Midway through the show, Terry fled the theater and collapsed on the sidewalk outside, tormented by visions of hellfire. It was a pivotal moment in David's life, one that marked a permanent split with the man who'd been his dear friend, protector, and mentor. 
David would remember Cream playing I Feel Free in the distance, the soundtrack to his own lost innocence. His choice to cover the song on Black Tie, White Noise was made all the more poignant by the addition of guitarist Mick Ronson. Mick had been David's main collaborator and onstage foil during his formative Ziggy years, delivering bone-crunching guitar solos in addition to the lush orchestral arrangements for David's early gems. Their relationship had been strained since David famously jettisoned the Spiders from Mars during his Ziggy Stardust retirement show. When Ronson made his own bid for the spotlight with a solo record, David felt betrayed and the two stopped speaking. It would take almost a decade for them to perform together again. Relations finally began to thaw in 1983 when David brought Ronson out as a special guest on one of his serious Moonlight tour dates. They stayed in touch after that, but mostly kept their distance. The next time they shared the stage was in April of 1992 at a tribute concert for Freddie Mercury, who had recently died of an AIDS-related illness. Ronson's own health crisis brought a somber edge to the already melancholic event. He'd been diagnosed with inoperable liver cancer and knew his time could be measured in months. The news triggered a flood of emotions in David, who invited Mick into the studio to record one more time together, for old time's sake. It would be his first appearance on a Bowie record in 20 years, and it was also his last. Mick Ronson died weeks after the release of Black Tie, White Noise in the spring of 1993. He was 47 years old. David was in the midst of his press tour and honored his fallen bandmate frequently during interviews. Of all the early 70s guitar players, Mick was probably one of the most influential and profound, David told TV host Arsenio Hall days after his death. I miss him a lot. Curiously, David failed to attend Ronson's tribute concert, a decision that puzzled fans and rankled Ronson's loved ones. He'd done it for Freddie Mercury. Why not Mick? The truth was complicated, as is often the case when David grappled with sentimentality. Friends recall David listening to old Spiders-era recordings in the weeks after Ronson's death and being moved to tears by the guitarist's virtuosity. Many who interacted with David over the years would declare him an Iceman, incapable of forging an authentic emotional connection. In reality, the feelings were likely too much to bear. It was just easier to move forward. David was in the midst of a creative renaissance. He followed Black Tie, White Noise a few months later with one of his greatest and most overlooked albums. It was the soundtrack to a four-part television film based on the novel The Buddha of Suburbia, about a young Indian man caught between the old world and new values as he comes of age in South London. David loves the book. He'd fancied himself the Buddha of Suburbia during his arts lab years in Beckenham. He was such a fan that a magazine sent him to interview the book's author, Hanif Qureshi, a fellow Bromley boy who had even attended the same school as Bowie. At the end of the interview, the author mentioned that the BBC was adapting the book for a movie. Mostly as a joke, he suggested Bowie do the music. Within days, they were both in a recording studio. Bowie worked on the BBC's tight time schedule, writing and recording the music in just six days. He also worked on the BBC's tight budget, a pittance that left him thoroughly amused. Though only the title track was actually featured in the film, it was categorized as a soundtrack album and marketed accordingly. That is to say, it was barely marketed at all. 
When it was released in November of 1993, The Buddha of Suburbia became David's first album in 22 years not to make the UK charts. It wasn't even released in the States until 1995. Despite its obscurity, or perhaps because of it, David would cite the record as a favorite. On some level, he was probably relieved to avoid the hoopla that accompanied chart-busting sales. When a reporter asked if he planned on launching a tour to promote black tie white noise, he only laughed. Heavens no. I'd like to, but it takes up so much time. I think I lost a lot of my life doing that. Iman had completely redefined David's existence. She's changed my life, David said. I give far more over to her than before. So it takes a wedge out of what I would be throwing into my work. The idea of getting married and then immediately running away for 10 months on tour seemed like, in his words, a disaster. Instead, they traveled the world together, from Bali to southern England, the grounds of King Arthur's mythical Camelot. My idea of an experience is a yacht cruise with Amon, he'd say. I want to be with her. She's my soulmate. Their devotion to each other was total, as far from a showbiz marriage as one could get. One Christmas... Iman made David slippers, waking up an hour before his 6 a.m. alarm to hand-broider his initials. David made strenuous efforts to get healthy for his new bride. He gave up drinking and took up jogging. He even tried to quit smoking, but that habit proved harder to kick. He still inhaled upwards of 60 Marlboro lights a day, burning them down to his knuckle before lighting the next with the ashes of the first. He tried books, tapes, even a hypnotist. But the couch, he said, only gave him a sore bum. The time he'd previously spent on music instead went to the visual arts. He began developing his art collection, purchasing works by Damien Hirst, David Bomberg, and Jean-Michel Basquiat. David appeared in the late street artist biopic, playing, of all people, Andy Warhol. Much as he'd done for The Elephant Man, David did his research. He visited the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh and handled some of his personal effects, even borrowing the pop art titan's wig for the film. He read extensively on art history and attended lectures. David even joined the editorial board for Modern Painters magazine. He continued to paint himself, pursuing a passion that dated back to his days at Bromley Tech as a student in the art class taught by Peter Frampton's father, Owen. In his own mind, He'd always seen himself as less of a musician and more of a painter who'd gone astray. In April of 1995, David held his first solo exhibition at a London gallery, displaying portraits, sculptures, and images generated through computers, his new favorite tool. Art critics were suspicious of paintings by those of David's ilk, rock music being traditionally viewed as a lesser art form, and the reviews were predictably savage. The word embarrassing cropped up at least once. And then there was another of David's visual projects, wallpaper. That's right, David Bowie created a line of wallpaper, produced in tandem with Laura Ashley. To be fair, this wasn't your grandma's wallpaper. One design included a charcoal drawing of a mythological half-man, half-bull creature known as a minotaur. The critics, not to mention David's fans, were baffled. One reviewer was bold enough to ask if the wallpaper was David's artistic suicide note. But David seemed to take it a lot less seriously than everyone else. I chose wallpaper because of its status as something completely incongruous, he'd explain. I haven't completely lost my sense of irony. 
I'm midway between high art and low art. I'm a mid-art populist and a postmodernist Buddhist who's casually surfing his way through the chaos of the late 20th century. When David and Iman wished to further escape the chaos of the late 20th century, they flew to the island of Mystique, an outpost for wealthy British expats in the Grenadines, just off the coast of South America. David had first visited the island in 1986, when Mick Jagger and his girlfriend Jerry Hall invited him down to their estate for Christmas. David immediately fell in love with the remote tropical paradise, and his ongoing competition with Mick made it all the more appealing. Bowie, after all, was always anxious to keep up with the Jaggers. Soon, David had his own plot of land and a team of workmen constructing a compound to his exact specifications. It was a fantasia of Asian influences. There were Japanese gardens with ornamental koi ponds and a Balinese dining pavilion that overlooked the mountains of Britannia Bay. The main house was stocked with 14 cargo containers of antiques from all around the world. Mystique became David's sanctuary, where he could read, paint, and work on the screenplay he'd been tinkering with for years. When even that became too taxing, he could take a dip in the sea, or eat some lobster, or just watch the sunset with Iman. He would later describe the home as somewhere where he had absolutely no motivation to do a thing. Inevitably, David would be drawn back into his music. He'd rekindled his connection with Brian Eno, his co-conspirator on the boldly experimental Berlin Trilogy. The pair hadn't worked together since 1979's Lodger. In the intervening years, Eno had become one of the most in-demand producers in music, overseeing groundbreaking releases for Talking Heads, U2, and Devo, all of whom were deeply influenced by the work he'd done with Bowie. Reunited at David's wedding, they each played pieces of their own music at the reception and were thrilled by the response on the dance floor. This sparked talks for a new album, which they hoped would be the most uncompromising of their careers. For a fresh approach, they visited the Guggen Psychiatric Hospital near Vienna, where a group of patients were housed in a combination clinic and artist commune. There, they could give free rein to their creative impulses and express themselves outside of the usual parameters placed on artists. David and Eno brought some of their outsider artwork back with them to their studio, touchstones for their new outlook. Sessions in Montreux, Switzerland, took on the atmosphere of an avant-garde art happening when they began in March of 1994. An all-star lineup of Bowie collaborators had been assembled, including Berlin Trilogy veteran Carlos Alomar, ex-spider from Mars Mike Garson, Tin Machine bandmate Reeves Gabrels, drummer Sterling Campbell, and bassist Erdal Kazilke. Paints, charcoal, canvas, and paper were left around the studio, just in case anyone wanted to express themselves visually when they weren't playing. Much as he did on Heroes and Lodger, Eno employed his trusty oblique strategies cards to prime the creative pump with unorthodox suggestions. But this time he took it a step further, devising a complex role-playing game to break the players out of their usual habits and self-limiting mindsets. At the start of the sessions, he passed a card to each musician that contained information about their character. You're on the third moon of Jupiter, and you're the house band, read one. You're the morale booster of a small ragtag terrorist operation. You must keep spirits up at all costs, said another. Bowie's card informed him that he was a town crier in a society where all media networks have tumbled down. 
The experiments continued as they played as well. Sometimes, Eno would have the musicians listen to Motown oldies through their headphones as they recorded a totally unrelated song, just to see how the music in their ears impacted the vibe of the new track. Out of context, these approaches seemed like the comical whims of an eccentric producer, but there was a method to the madness. It was intended to keep the music from gelling too much and becoming too homogenized, too, in Eno's words, coherent. The interesting place is not chaos, and it's not total coherence, he would explain. It's somewhere on the cusp of those two. Bowie took a similar approach with his lyrics. He updated the William Burroughs-style cut-and-paste technique that he'd used on Diamond Dogs. This time, he fed bits of poems and magazine articles into a computer program that randomly reconfigured sentences and phrases. Much as he had while making low, David started getting concerned notes from his label wondering what the hell he was doing. That's when David knew they were on to something good. The experimentation paid off. They completed some 35 hours of backing tracks in just 10 days. Then it took David a year and a half to whittle it down and craft the songs into a single narrative, or, as he put it, a non-linear gothic drama hypercycle. It was a return to the sci-fi concept albums that he'd largely avoided since Diamond Dogs. This time... He'd craft a fictional dystopian realm that was more ambitious than any he'd ever attempted. Over the early months of 1995, he added a series of spoken word siegs, or monologues, to flesh out the surreal murder plot. It was somewhat dense and convoluted, more akin to a graphic novel than an album, featuring not one but seven protagonists. Based on a short story he'd written called The Diary of Nathan Adler, the tale follows the dismemberment of a 14-year-old runaway whose body parts are intended for use in an art piece. Detective Nathan Adler, who works in the government's newly formed Art Crime Bureau, is tasked with determining what is legally acceptable as art and what's trash. It's a biting comment on both the the turn-of-the-millennium anxiety and also the art scene of the era. Perhaps the poor reviews David received at his solo exhibition provided some inspiration. David called the album One Outside. Despite the numeral in its title, and the to-be-continued tease at the end, the four sequels he supposedly had planned never materialized. Even with the unresolved cliffhanger, it's his definitive work of the 90s. At 75 minutes, it's David's longest record, a sprawling epic that confounds and intrigues. As with the best of his work, it manages to meld a host of disparate contemporary musical influences in a way that's both fresh and original. One Outside was released in September of 1995 at the height of the Britpop craze. It was a time when bands like Suede, Pulp, Supergrass, and Blur ruled the airwaves, reverently following in the footsteps of the British rock forefathers, of whom Bowie was an esteemed member. The hit parade was choked with the sound that David himself had helped engineer, and it would have been easy for him to court success by imitating his imitators. Instead, he challenged listeners with the trip-hop techno of I'm Deranged and the electro-free jazz of a small plot of land. There were Eno-esque textured soundscapes like the motel and wishful beginnings and the hard-edged industrial rock of the heart's filthy lesson. This latter song became the album's lead single, a suitably uncompromising choice. It's so packed with goth doom that director David Fincher selected the song to play over the closing titles of his serial killer drama, Seven. 
The deliberately controversial music video was directed by Sam Bayer, who'd done the same for Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was a nightmarishly gory horror movie montage of skulls, candles, and troubling items in jars. The grim griminess expressed Bowie's growing fascination with blood rites and neo-paganism, but most missed these references and found themselves simply terrified by the visuals. The video was banned by MTV, which surely must have pleased a renegade like Bowie. After more than 20 years as a public figure, he still had the power to shock and outrage. With his new, bloody, rusted razor blade aesthetic, David aligned himself with arty shock rockers like Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails, the latter of which was a growing influence on him. While recording one outside, he often listened to The Downward Spiral, which was released just weeks before sessions began in March of 1994. As fate would have it, Nine Inch Nails' Trent Reznor listened to Bowie's album Low on a daily basis while recording The Downward Spiral. It seemed logical that their paths would cross, but many were surprised when they announced the joint U.S. tour set to kick off in the summer of 1995. Nine Inch Nails opened the show, paying tribute to the headliner with versions of Scary Monsters and Subterranean before bringing out the man himself. After duets on Reptile and Hurt, they seated the stage to Bowie, and the crowd generally couldn't have cared less. For David... The tour was an act of stubborn artistic bravery. Firstly, it opened himself up to accusations that he was a rock and roll Peter Pan, trying to prove that he could still keep the pace with the young guys. Moreover, his fan base hardly overlapped with that of Nine Inch Nails. As soon as the band said their onstage farewells, there was a mass exodus towards the arena doors. The audience were mostly teenagers. They didn't want to stay for this old-timer. David made no effort to be accommodating, stacking his set almost exclusively with tracks from one outside. As he'd mischievously explained, I slip on stage after a set by the most aggressive band ever to conquer the top 40. I don't do hits. I perform lots of songs from an album that hasn't been released, and the older songs I perform are probably obscure even to my oldest fans. I use no theatrics, no videos, and often no costumes. It's a dirty job, but I think I'm just the man for it. He liked the challenge of winning over an indifferent audience. Like his excursions with Tin Machine, it made him feel exhilarated, inspired, and maybe a little youthful. But it made pretty much everyone else feel confused. Even Reznor was surprised by how the tour was shaking out. His gargantuan success hadn't changed the fundamentally shy Bowie superfan that he was at heart. He was daunted by the prospect of touring with his hero and found himself desperately hoping that he wouldn't bump into David backstage before a show. It was just too intimidating. Reznor was at a particularly unhappy point in his life, drowning in drugs and self-loathing. The adoration of the audience seemed like mockery in his depressed state. He was low, and David recognized it. He'd been there, and it was still familiar. He did what he could to offer some Big Brother-style advice to his young friend delivered with compassion and a warm arm around his shoulder. You know, he said, there's a better way here, and it doesn't have to end in despair or death. David himself was a living example, a happy person, insanely in love, still making art that was fearless. It could be done, and Reznor would get there someday. David had gone through it, and now he led by quiet example. His music had inspired many to get into the industry, 
Now his aging inspired many to survive it. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. David Bowie turned 50 years old on January 8, 1997. His birthday was treated as a major historical milestone by the world press. There were retrospectives on the BBC and profiles in magazines and newspapers. Many of his rock star brethren had tried to downplay the fact that they were now half a century old. But not David. The following day, he threw himself a party. Nothing crazy, just an intimate, low-key gathering at Madison Square Garden with 20,000 fans and hosts of artists on the cutting edge of the music scene. Clearly, his dramatic flair hadn't faded with age. 
He appeared on stage looking his most Ziggy-like in years, with a lacy frock coat topped off with a red-dyed rooster cut, pale pancake makeup, and thick lashings of mascara. At first, he stuck to selections from One Outside in his upcoming album Earthling, before revisiting his golden oldies with the help of his famous guests. Turns out, he wasn't going to retire those songs after all. There were appearances by The Cure's Robert Smith, Foo Fighters, The Pixies' Frank Black, and Sonic Youth. Billy Corgan appeared during the second encore to perform All the Young Dudes and a raucous Gene Genie. Organizers for the pay-per-view extravaganza tried to pressure David into inviting safe choices, classic rock peers like Mick Jagger or Tina Turner. But the birthday boy refused. In fact, his only contemporary was Lou Reed, warmly introduced as the King of New York. Towards the end of the show, the band launched into Happy Birthday as David, looking genuinely surprised, was presented with a birthday cake with Trick Campbells. He thanked fans who followed his career for decades and welcomed those who were new to his music. I don't know where I'm going from here, he said, but I promise I won't bore you. It was an event befitting a head of state, which in many ways is what he'd become. For much of his career, he'd been apolitical. Now he was chummy with Tony Blair. The first baby boomer prime minister presented him with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Brits, the English equivalent of the Grammys. He was offered a life peerage in the English House of Lords, but Bowie had no interest in being a baron. He would also turn down a knighthood from the Queen. I'm indifferent to royalty, he explained. Accepting one of those things would make me feel owned, and I'm not owned by anybody. But he showed his British pride on his next album, Earthling, released in February of 1997. On the cover, he wears a long overcoat emblazoned with a distressed Union Jack. Though he didn't embrace the jangly sound of the Britpop explosion, he too was caught up in the cool Britannia movement that swept the globe like a second coming of swinging London. As it had in the 60s, this wave of British creativity touched on all areas of the arts. There were films like Danny Boyle's Trainspotting, visual art from Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin. Fashion was represented by Kate Moss and Alexander McQueen, who designed Bowie's coat for the Earthling cover. The war-torn flag was Bowie's way of owning his status as the old guard. He was one of the originals. Though he recorded Earthling in New York City, he pronounced his English accent in a way that he seldom had since his days imitating Anthony Newley on his debut record. Instead of the Baroque pop he favored back in 1967, David of the 90s dove deeper into the sound of electronic club music, known alternately as jungle or drum and bass. Both names evoke the rapid-fire rhythms, thundering beats, and slashes of fuzzed-out guitar heard at raves across the UK. Five days after returning from his outside tour, David entered the Manhattan recording space owned by composer Philip Glass to begin work with producer Mark Platty, a man well-versed in the comparatively new art of digital production. Guitar parts and drums were recorded live and then processed through a sampler or distorted through a synthesizer. Songs like Little Wonder, Telling Lies, I'm Afraid of Americans, and Dead Man Walking were custom-made to be remixed by DJs for the dance floor. It would be David's first album recorded entirely digitally. David was intrigued by the concept that music could be made on the small laptop that he carried with him everywhere. 
The ease with which one could make and manipulate sounds opened the door for whole new realms of experimentation and spontaneity. David had been an early adopter of home computers, embracing them as a valuable tool for his work and life, although for a while he needed help turning it on. It came in handy for writing lyrics or for graphic design. He coordinated elements of 1987's Glass Spider Tour via email, long before most people had even considered such a notion. Email would become his preferred method of communication for the rest of his life. I'd be completely lost without it, he'd say in the early 90s, way before the rest of us would echo the sentiment. In later years, he was known to bombard friends with YouTube videos that had caught his attention. It soon became apparent to David that the computer was more than a mere gadget, but a mechanism that would fundamentally alter culture and the very way human beings process the world around them. He sensed the change would be exponentially greater than the advent of television due to the interactive potential of the internet. This wasn't just a communication system. It was, in his words, an alien life form. He predicted a non-linear society, capable of recombining and recontextualizing information rapidly. It sounded like one of his mid-70s sci-fi plots, on par with Ziggy or Hunger City, but it was all scarily prescient. I think the potential for what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable, he told a skeptical BBC News reporter in 1999. It's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. Music, he felt, and especially rock and roll, had lost its immediacy, its urgency, and its power as a change agent. Instead, he believed that spirit continued on with the internet. I wanted to be a musician because it felt rebellious, he said. It felt subversive. It felt like one could affect change. The internet now carries the flag of being subversive and rebellious. The monoculture was crumbling. The singularity had disappeared. We'd entered an age of pluralism, The fragmentation that Bowie had felt within himself was now being illustrated on a grand global scale. There were no longer era-defining cultural figures like Elvis or the Beatles, or even himself. Now it's subgroups and genres, he'd say. It's about the community. It's becoming more and more about the audience. He imagined the ways that the internet would not only change the way that content is delivered, but how it would redefine the relationship between the user and the provider and the long-term effects that would have on intellectual property. Music itself is going to become like running water or electricity, he said at the turn of the millennium, a decade before streaming services became prevalent. You'd better be prepared for doing a lot of touring, he warned his fellow musicians, because that's really the only unique situation that's going to be left. Sensing the sea change, Bowie responded accordingly. In November of 1996, he released the song Telling Lies on his website, making it the first downloadable single by a major artist. To help launch Earthling in 1997, he held a cybercast of his concert from Boston, though few people had a strong enough internet connection to view it properly. The following year, he'd venture to change that by launching BowieNet, his own high-speed internet service that offered a host of exclusive Bowie-centric content, ranging from video feeds, chat rooms, and Q&A sessions with Bowie himself. This was unheard of for a musician of Bowie's caliber. If a performer had a website at all in the 90s, it was just a digital billboard to shill their latest album or tour. BowieNet was a social network before the term existed. David greeted those who entered his cyber home with a message. 
I welcome all you web travelers to the first community-driven internet site that focuses on music, film, literature, painting, and more. The purpose is interactivity and community. Everybody has a voice. David was a regular in his chat rooms, posting under the handle Sailor. As with most celebrities, his information on the world came through handlers and representatives, many of whom had a vested interest in his reaction or response. With the internet, David could get the info for himself, unfiltered. I love the chat rooms, because you get to hear what people genuinely think, he said. The communication between me and my web audience has become more intimate than it's ever been. It's a feeling I enjoy because it's new to me. It's adventurous. It's a new position of what the artist is. It's a demystification. Bowie would lose hours holed up in his home office, known as the bunker. When he wasn't lurking in his own chat rooms, he indulged his curiosity on the web or purchased obscure collectibles on eBay. Sometimes his internet excursions carried on late into the evening, which created a bit of tension in his marriage. Iman wasn't too happy because I just never came to bed, he admitted. Once you start surfing at night, you can really break up a relationship. You got to be very careful about that, he cautioned. Towards the end of 1998, the computer game company Eidos Interactive asked Bowie to provide music for an adventure video game they were developing called A Micron, The Nomad Soul. The programmers sweetened the deal by offering to turn David, Iman, and even members of David's band into characters in the game. How could a futurist techno-nerd resist? Sessions for the game soundtrack evolved into a full-fledged Bowie album called Hours, and its rollout was an appropriately digital affair. The cover art was unveiled on Bowie's website, where the album will be made available as a digital download prior to its release on CD, another first for a major artist. But the real masterstroke was the Cyber Song Contest, offering one lucky fan the chance to write four lines of lyrics to the album track What's Really Happening. A hummed melody was shared to Bowie's website, and budding writers were encouraged to give it their best shot. Bowie was inundated with over 80,000 submissions. The winner an Ohio college student named Alex Grant, was given a $15,000 publishing contract and flown to New York to watch David record his words. Grown inside a plastic box, micro-thoughts and safety locks, hearts become outdated clocks, ticking in your mind. The entire event was webcast, allowing fans to watch as a new Bowie song was completed before their very eyes. After the daring and bombastic Earthling and One Outside, Hours found David at his most introspective. Themes of mortality crop up on tracks like Thursday's Child, The Dreamers, and The Standout Survive. There was, after all, a lot to be reflective about. It was the fall of 1999, and the end of the millennium encouraged many to take stock. The year marked an end, but it also signaled a new beginning. It certainly was for David and Iman, just two months into the new year, they announced that they were going to be parents. They'd been trying for a baby for years, but several rounds of IVF proved fruitless. Ultimately, they conceived naturally. Iman credited the successful conception to a traditional African remedy, holding a borrowed baby. In this case, the child was supplied by fellow supermodel Christy Brinkley during a Vogue photo shoot. Their little girl was born on August 15, 2000, at Manhattan's Mount Sinai Hospital. David cut the umbilical cord himself. 
weighing in at seven pounds, four ounces, they called her Alexandria Zara Jones, her name inspired by the ancient Greco-Egyptian seat of culture. She is wonderful, David gushed, and probably, I believe, the most intelligent child that's ever been born. A father again at 53, he was thrilled. Except, that is, for one thing. I don't do nappies, he admitted. The dreaded diaper duty aside, he was a devoted father. He cleaned up his last remaining vice, finally kicking his multiple-pack-a-day smoke habit for good. Cognizant of his spotty paternal attendance record during his son's early years, David insisted he wouldn't tour as much. I don't want to make the same mistakes with Lexi, he said. As David was reappraising his approach to fatherhood, he became an orphan himself. His mother Peggy died at an English nursing home just a few months after Lexi's birth in April of 2001. She was 87 years old. Her death came out of the blue and was a horrible shock to David. The chilliness that had characterized their relationship in his youth had thawed by the 80s when they spent holidays and vacations together. He cared for her, even spoiled her. It's unclear whether he got the acceptance that he craved in return. I'm sorry to hear about your mum, a friend told him after the funeral. You know, I don't think she ever took to me. David replied, Trouble was, I don't think she ever took to me either. David's daughter became the center of his world. A year after her birth, he described his main job as daddyfying and it brought him untold joy. To be honest, I really have to pull myself together to focus on music, he said. Sometimes it almost feels like a distraction. He began a period of nesting. After years of flitting between houses all over the world, he set down roots in New York. The new Soho apartment he shared with Iman and Lexi became his primary residence. I can't imagine living anywhere else, he'd say. I am a New Yorker. He loved it for all the same reasons John Lennon had, not to mention other UK stars all too familiar with the ferocity of British paparazzi. In New York, they could be anonymous and move around without a photographer's lens shoved in their face. If David threw on a cap and some jeans, he could be almost anyone. He didn't much go for disguises, but he found that pretending to read a Greek newspaper allowed him to ride public transport with minimal hassle. He was an early riser, waking up at six to venture out on dawn walks around the city. Sometimes he brought Lexi in her stroller. Other times he just went solo. After getting his groceries in the boutique Dean and DeLuca market nearby on Broadway, Bowie could often be found browsing the rows of books at McNally Jackson's. It was like he was back in Berlin, strolling with no security, grabbing coffee at his regular cafe, running into his neighbor Moby in the corner deli. He'd still go to concerts on occasion, anointing the new breed of NYC bands like The Strokes, Interpol, and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs with a backstage visit, but for the most part, he was a homebody. By his own admission, having a family, and sticking around to be present for it, leveled him out, moving him from a life of action to one of contemplation and reflection. This retrospective mood is apparent on David's new project, an album revisiting early songs he wrote back in the mid-60s. Called Toy, the proposed album included Liza Jane, the first recording he'd ever released back in 1964. Other titles, like Hole in the Ground, were of a similar vintage but never recorded. Label troubles would halt the album indefinitely, 
though some tracks would trickle out as B-sides or bonus songs. While much of it leaked out on the internet in 2011, to many it remains something approaching the great lost Bowie album. The experience left a bitter taste in Bowie's mouth, leading to his departure from his label soon after. But the toy recordings rekindled a working relationship with Tony Visconti, David's longtime friend and collaborator. The two had fallen out just prior to 1982's Let's Dance sessions, when David rather rudely booted him as co-producer in favor of Nile Rodgers, just weeks before recording was due to begin. Stung by the rejection, Visconti refused David's invitation to mix sound for the resulting Serious Moonlight tour. Sure, the thinking went, give the hotshot producer the glamour and leave me with the grunt work. They didn't speak for a while after that. They came together briefly in 1998 to work on a song for the soundtrack to Nickelodeon's The Rugrats movie, but the scene for the song was cut, and the track was amazingly dropped. During the toy sessions a few years later, David revived Let Me Sleep Beside You, an obscure 1967 track that has the distinction of being the first song he and Visconti ever worked on together. Visconti wrote a new string arrangement, which led to a coffee date, which led to plans to make their first new album together in 22 years. In June of 2001, the pair traveled to Visconti's drafty country home in upstate New York, workshopping songs like they had in the basement of Haddon Hall all those years ago. Then they got to work at Alar Studios, a recording facility in a former luxury estate carved into the high peaks of the Catskills. The vaulted wooden ceilings made it look like a rustic cathedral. David couldn't help but be inspired by the god's-eye view of the mountains and reservoir outside the massive picture windows. He could see for miles, clear through to Manhattan. Deer roamed the grounds while eagles kept watch overhead. David traditionally derived his inspiration from urban environments, but something about the stark natural scenery spoke to him. The moment he arrived, he later said, I knew exactly what lyrics I was to write, although I didn't yet know what the words themselves were. They came to him early one morning. David had a habit of arriving at the studio at sunrise to gather his thoughts. Alone, gazing out the window at the deer grazing in the pre-dawn haze, he had an experience. The precise word for it differs across cultures and theologies. Oneness, wholeness, enlightenment, loving awareness, nirvana, zen. It washed over him like a warm wave. The beauty and fragility of existence became so clear. I couldn't believe this was happening to me, David would recall. The serenity and the majesty of it. How beautiful the world is. It all started coming in, and I honed in on what it was I really had to say about my life. It was magical. Words began pouring out of him as tears streamed down his face. He didn't want to write what he had to say, but he had to. The feeling was odd, like someone else was guiding him. He would describe the moment as a traumatic epiphany. His hard-won happiness was tempered by the irrefutable fact that everything is temporary. It's a head-spinning dichotomy, he'd say. The lust for life against the finality of everything. Those two things raging against each other. That produces these moments that feel like real truth. The words would form the basis of a new song, Heathen. At first pass, 
The lyrics appear to be a man leaving a lover, but the object he addresses is life. Heathen is about knowing you're dying, David explained. It's a dialogue between a man and life itself. It's a man confronting the realization that life is a finite thing and that he can already feel it actually going from him, ebbing out of him, the weakening of age. It was more than just a little autobiographical. There are times in our quiet lives when we're very happy, he'd say. But there comes a point when you're not growing anymore and your body's strength is diminishing. Especially in one's mid-fifties, you're very aware that that's the moment you have to leave the idea of being young. You've got to let it go. There was a nursery rhyme David remembered from his childhood. This is the way the young men ride. Clip-clop, 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 it starts. Then it ends with, this is the way the old men ride. Hobbledy, 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 down into the ditch. David was keenly aware that these days, he rode like an old man. I wanted to give some sense of what happens when you arrive at this age, he said. Do you still have doubts? Do you still have questions and fears? And does everything burn with as much luminosity as it did when you were young? It was the inverse of nihilism. This was gratitude. In his youth, he'd often gambled with his life. Now those days were behind him. He wanted to stay. I love this work, he said. I love this life. I'm so greedy not to want to give it up. I just don't want to give it up. It's hard to give it up. Heathen would become the title track for his new album. For the first time since the Buddha of Suburbia, David wrote all the new material himself. The songs reflected David's tumultuous year, in which he lost a parent and became one again. The autumnal lyrics grappled with feelings of loss, isolation, abandonment, and uncertainty. By David's own estimation, all of his work dealt with these same themes. All of the high points of one's life, he'd note wryly. His greatest strength as a writer was his ability to capture transitory, nagging fear. It was the dread that had defined his existence, the possibility that there was no true spiritual life. The concept of heathen is a godless century, Tony Visconti observed. He was addressing the bleakness of our soul, and possibly his own soul. The songs on Heathen would be colored by a national tragedy, one that hit terrifyingly close to home for David. He was upstate in the studio one Tuesday morning in September when he saw the news that a jetliner had flown into one of the World Trade Center towers. He immediately called Iman back in their downtown apartment where she could see the building burn from their kitchen window. They were on the phone when she saw a second plane hit the tower. You're under attack, David said. Get out of there. Iman bundled Lexi in her stroller and ran uptown to seek shelter at a friend's apartment. The phone lines were jammed across the city, and for the rest of the day, David didn't know whether his wife and daughter were still alive. It was so, so horrifying, he would say. It was incredibly traumatic. One of the nastiest days of my life. From the studio window, David watched the orange smoke in the distance snake towards the sky. The events of September 11th gave extra resonance to David's powerful lyrics. 
The album was greeted with near-universal praise upon its release in June of 2002. His best album since Scary Monsters had been a familiar refrain throughout his 90s creative resurgence, but now the line seemed to fit. David's modest tour featured concerts in each of New York's five boroughs, an expression of love and thanks for his grieving adopted home. His next album, 2003's Reality, was steeped in the urban angst of Manhattan. To promote it, he planned an epic nine-month, 112-date trek across Europe, America, Asia, and Australia. At age 56, it was an unusual time to embark on the longest, most grueling tour of his career. But then again, he was in the best shape of his life. Drugs were long gone. Plus, he'd given up booze and kicked cigarettes. He watched what he ate with the help of a private chef, and he was working out, boxing multiple times a week with a trainer. With his casual sneakers and skin-tight black t-shirt that showed off his slender frame, he barely looked 40. But Tony Visconti sensed he was tired before the tour launched that October. As the concerts progressed, his body began to rebel. In November, he canceled a show due to laryngitis, and the first leg of the U.S. tour was delayed for a week when he came down with the flu. But this was all just a precursor of what was to come. For years, David denied rumors of a secret cocaine-induced heart attack. Delightful, but untrue, he'd insist. It's very romantic, but I've got a very sound heart. But intimates, including Reeves Gabrels, claimed that he often complained of chest pains on tour, but swore one and all to secrecy. David didn't want to worry him on. But in June of 2004, it became too much. On June 23rd, he ended a gig in Prague early due to a shooting pain in his left shoulder. A tour doctor told him it was a trapped nerve and gave him the all-clear to continue two days later at the Hurricane Festival in Germany. The set seemed normal to his band, though maybe not as energetic as some of his previous performances. He ended his encore with Ziggy Stardust, his ode to his alter ego, his nemesis, his dream brother. It was note perfect. After taking his bows, David climbed off the stage and collapsed in agony. An ambulance was summoned and took him away. A German doctor determined that it wasn't a trapped nerve that was bothering him, but a blocked artery in his heart. They advised an emergency angioplasty and put David under. As he drifted away from the anesthesia, he must have been amused. The first time he'd seen his hero Little Richard perform, Richard had feigned a heart attack mid-song for dramatic effect. Now David had the real thing, and he didn't miss a beat. His bandmates looked on in disbelief as David's ambulance sped off. The remaining tour dates were canceled. They were going home. Few realized it, but David Bowie had just given his last concert. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show was researched, written, and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil, with additional music by Evan Tyre. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.